Hello and welcome to the Career Explorations and Genomic Medicine Research Podcast. This program is sponsored by the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Program for Precision Medicine and Healthcare. This Career Explorations program is aimed at undergraduate students. Our goals are to help you expand your knowledge of potential careers related to genomic medicine research. And we hope to increase your understanding of what you will need to do to become a member of the genomic medicine research workforce. We also want to help you build a supportive network of professionals. Each episode of this podcast series presents a conversation with a researcher or clinician who works in a particular aspect of genomic medicine research. So my name is um, Janae Simon. Hello, everyone. It's nice to meet you all. I'm a software engineer at UNC Chapel Hill. I work as part of the Bioinformatics Corps, which is part of the Leinberger Comprehensive Cancer Center here at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, my background, I have a Bachelor's of Science from NC State in Computer Science. Um, general uh, kind of work history background after, um, during my uh, summer after sophomore year and after my junior year, I did two summer internships at IBM in Poughkeepsie, New York. And then upon graduation, got a, a job at IBM as a software engineer here in RTP. And then after that, I joined UNC. I've been in UNC Chapel Hill for 11 years now, all within the bioinformatics um, department. So um, as, uh, for my job right now, I manage a team of software developers. We develop an application, it's called the LIMS application, which is used to track samples in several research labs here at UNC Chapel Hill. So it tracks everything that happens to the samples um, from the time that they arrive in the lab through all the processing steps and then until the sample is either exhausted or distributed out to another facility. And these samples that are used um, across multiple research projects, not just cancer, mostly cancer research projects, but a lot of other different types of um, research projects. Um, so on a day-to-day -day basis, I get to work through the entire software development lifecycle um, from the time of working with directly with our users to gather the requirements, figure out what their needs are. Then I get to take those requirements and turn them into real software solutions. So I get to write the code. Our current application right now is written in Java, and we have an Oracle database at the back end. And then um, we're actually in the process of working to migrate it into a web application using newer technologies like HTML, CSS, and Node.js, and we'll still be connecting to the same um, Oracle database on the back end. So um, we get to implement the solutions, and then also, too, um, then we have to maintain the application. So users contact us with any questions or issues they have with the application once it's up and running. It's kind of a general uh, summary of myself and my background. Are there any questions or anything? Hi, Bria. I just wanted to know, like, what was your experience transitioning from industry to academia? And, like, how did that work out for you? Uh, that's a great question. Um, so um, when I was working at IBM, it was a great job. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, but one big thing for me that was really rewarding was moving to the academic environment and especially to the research environment, knowing that I'm, like, I'm not actually like me personally, probably will not help find a, a cure for cancer, me directly. But to know that some of the work that I'm doing can lead to um, helping to find a cure for cancer and other diseases is super rewarding versus being in an industry where I'm helping IBM sell another product. Um, another big difference is kind of the, the culture and the work environment. So being working in industry, uh, I felt like at times you're kind of just like a, a number in the, you know, mass 
you know, group of employees and uh, the, uh, co I didn't feel as much, you know, co cohesiveness and stuff among the, um, the team. Um, but here at UNC um, and in the university environment, there are so many, not that there weren't smart people at UNC, but there are so many smart people around that are so diverse with their backgrounds. And everyone here just also seems to be more appreciative of all of the work um, that I do. So um, that's kind of the, the big difference I've seen between uh, academia, academia and uh, industry. Oh, one other difference I have noticed too in um, academia as well as a software engineer, we have a lot more flexibility. So as far as um, when it comes to the project, um, I can pick whatever technology I want. Um, we can use whatever kind of backend database we want to use. So there's a lot more uh, technical flexibility in what um, technologies you use versus at IBM, we kind of had a strict, these are the tools that you, you know, that you have to use. Thank you. Hey, um, Anjali, I have another question. So can you elaborate more on how exactly like the work that you do will kind of interdisciplinarily um, help someone who's trying to find a cure to cancer? Okay, sure. So, um, for example, um, some a couple of the labs that we work with deal with uh, next generation sequencing. So, um, for that, they actually they have patients who are seen in clinics at UNC and across the state. Um, their blood or tissue samples actually come to um, labs in UNC. So, the system that we manage will track the sample when it comes into the lab and then any of the processing associated with that sample. And then that sample, if I back up a little bit, um, that sample is associated with a patient or um, what that's in that research study. So our system tracks everything that happens to the sample, including for next generation sequencing, what sequencing machine it was put on, what lane, and where are the output files from that data. So now um, with the help of our system, we have a picture from here's the patient, Here's the samples that they produced, and here's the data that was output from their samples. Then that data goes on to the other part of the bioinformatics core, which is the more scientific side, and they can actually analyze this next generation sequencing data. They look at the actual DNA sequences, the A's, C's, C's, and G's, any types of mutations and stuff in the, in the DNA sequence, and then they can identify and um, help them figure out cures or treatments um, for that particular patient. Okay, thank you. Um, is there any, like, just, well, I know that you're not really um, on the biology side, but are there any aspects of that that you have learned since being at UNC that you felt have maybe helped you in your work? Um, actually, I have learned quite a bit, so you probably know a lot more of the biology than I do, but just having to work with, with the labs, like, I've learned that, you know, you can separate, when you have blood, you can process it out, and you can separate the serum and the plasma. Right, so um, working directly with the labs and having get to get um, requirements from them, I have actually learned a good bit of uh, uh, biology, just basic biology, of course, but I've learned a lot from them. Was there anything that you wish you knew coming in, or th did they like help you learn all of that quickly so then you were like ready to go? Um, they helped me learn a lot of it coming in. Now, if I knew, if I knew more of the biology, um, that would have helped me the front, but they've been super helpful in, in helping me learn it along the way. One thing I do wish I had knew more about so that I could help more of the scientific side of our group is actually more of the statistics and more of the analysis, right? I, I don't know uh, much about that. 
Hey, um, this is a specific question um, based on my project. So I, I heard that you mentioned next-gen sequencing. So um, do you actually get all the data and sequence, like what type of data? Because we're starting to learn next-gen sequencing in terms of RNA-seq data. So I was just trying to understand like how broad the area is and like what other types of data you can use using next-gen. Sure. Um, so primarily um, the labs that we work with, they have mostly Illumina platforms. We do a lot of RNA-seq, DNA-seq, um, trying to do some uh, um, 10x genomics. So a lot of different types. Um, the data that comes out, my understanding is a lot of what they do now to kind of save money on the sequencers is they pool um, a bunch of samples together. And each sample within the pool um, has a unique barcode on it. So one thing that we have to track is the barcode that's associated with each sample. Because what they're going to do is they're going to put this entire pool on lane number one. And so then as a researcher, I can save a lot of money because I can pay for like one eighth of a lane rather than having to pay for the entire lane. So when the sequencing is done, um, a lot of data is generated, right? You can see every A, C, T, G, et cetera, um, in the, the, um, uh, the DNA or RNA that was sequenced. So all this data comes out and I'm not sure the exact format, but think of it coming out in one big clump. Then what they do is they run, um, we run the BCL to FASTQ, but the process there is called, it's a demultiplexing process. So think about, we had a bunch of individual samples. They were all merged together. They go onto a sequencer and they come out with this big pool of data. Now what we need to do is split that back out into all the individual samples. So we know like what sequence and what data associated with each individual sample. So that process is called um, demultiplexing, and we're using BCL to FASTQ currently for our demultiplexing process. And the data that comes out of that demultiplexing, we generate uh, FASTQ files. And then the FASTQ files are then processed through like the RNA-seq workflow, for example. Um, now the actual sequencing workflow, that's kind of where my knowledge base ends. I don't know much about the actual RNA-seq process and um, that workflow. Okay, that's very helpful, thank you, because we just learned about like the basic process of, to get a FASTQ file, but after that it's like that's where we're trying to process um, RNA-seq. So, yeah, thank you. Okay. Yes, sir? Oh, I have a question. Yeah. Okay, so was, would you say your career path was linear or did it take like different turns? Um, mine was actually very linear. Um, even linear from the fact that, so my dad was a computer and electrical engineer. So even as a teenager, like I pretty much knew what I wanted to do and, and he directed me towards software instead of hardware. Um, so my career path has been really linear. I mean, I, you know, I wanted to go to engineering school. I went to NC State, graduated from computer science and then went to IBM and then to UNC. So it's been very linear for me. Mm -hmm. And how did you like keep that momentum and like staying like on that certain path? Like what inspired you to like not like get this current? Good question. Um, I guess one, my own personal, like personal motivation, right? I'm really self-motivated and I'm like the type that likes to have this list of things that I want to do. And I enjoy putting the check mark, you know, beside it once it's being completed. Mm -hmm. And then I have to say too, this, um, my own career path, I think, um, just hard work has helped me a whole lot. So, um, I've been promoted a few times, including now, you know, leading a team. And none of that was um, because I stood up and said, hey, I want to be a leader now, right? It was um, people seeing that, hey, she's doing a great job, you know, 
and handling more responsibility. Let's try and give her more responsibility, give her more responsibility. Okay. Hi, I had a quick question. Um, you mentioned yes. that you work with a bunch of people from different diverse backgrounds. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, so um, just for example, within the bioinformatics core, which is the department where I work, um, we have uh, several sides to it. One is the more scientific side that does like the RNA-seq pipelines and more of the data analysis. So they have that as a wide range of people with PhDs in various um, um, disciplines. Then also too, on the more IT side, we have um, our system administrators who manage all of the servers. We have um, the software developers like myself, but even within the software developers, we have people who took more, you know, the non-linear path, right? They did more humanities related in their undergraduate and then picked up programming later. And then also too, just working with all the lab labs that we support, right? There's a lot of scientists, people with more biology background or um, that type of thing. So it's just a, a lot of people with different diverse backgrounds uh, to work with. Do you feel like when you're working with scientists in the labs that they know what you're doing? Or do you feel like they need to have more knowledge of what your process is? Uh, the more knowledge is definitely helpful. So as we're working with users, you know, you kind of get a feel for them, like how good are they with technology? How much do they kind of know? And so you have to kind of tailor your, your conversations with them to kind of the level of things that they understand, right? So if I know that they're a super technical person, then I can talk te technical back to them. But if, you know, they, they just learned how to, you know, click their mouse yesterday, then you have to kind of, you know, explain things a little bit uh, differently. Hi, I wanted to know if you could like elaborate more on some of the challenges uh, that you face. Um, like in your work you're doing the sequencing? Sure. Um, so some challenges. Um, one big challenge is working with users. So um, working with users is great and super rewarding, but you also have users sometimes who don't have a good grasp of what they want. So it's really hard to develop a product when you don't get um, clear requirements um, from the user. And that's not always their fault. You know, maybe things are constantly changing on their side or they just don't really have a good feel for kind of what they want. So that's a big challenge for me. Um, since we get our requirements directly from the user, trying to interpret what they're saying and trying to get a good understanding of what they really mean. Because also sometimes they'll say, um, you know, I want a button to do this. And I, you know, you have to talk to them more and say, why do you want the button to do this, right? There might be a bigger problem that they haven't seen yet that we can actually develop a bigger solution that can help um, in more ways. Um, so that's one challenge. Um, the other challenge is always the constant challenge of time, right? Sometimes I wish that I could like multiply myself just so I can have enough time to um, get everything done that, that I'd like to. Cool, and could you also elaborate on, um, I know you mentioned earlier about you guys creating a website. Um, can you explain like why you chose that route um, versus like maybe like an application, like an app or something? Um, could you go into more detail? Okay, sure. Yeah. So the application I'm referring to is called the LIMS. It's the Laboratory Information Management System. Um, I actually didn't originally develop it. It was developed all here at UNC, um, but I inherited um, the application. And it is currently the one that's in production right now. Currently, is um, it's called a it's considered a fat client application. 
meaning someone goes to a website and the application actually downloads their local machine and everything is running um, through Java on their local computer um, and then interacts with the backend database. Um, so I've been at UNC for 11 years. I believe the application was started maybe three or four years before me. So the application is almost 15 years old in its current technology. And it looks like it's 15 years old and also has the limitations of the Java technology that it was that it uses. And then just the way the structure of the application has some limitations to it in the fact of speed, right? So it does things, a lot of things in a non-efficient way, but it does it in a non-efficient way that's really difficult to try and split out. So, so that we could, one, you know, have an application that looks nicer and more modern, and two, something that can be more responsive. And then also, two, one difficulty of having an application actually running on the user's machine is a lot of times we wind up being desktop or laptop support technicians, too. Right? There'll be one specific user who's having a trouble running the application, but it's because you know, the version of Java that they have installed on their computer is having a problem. Or there's some physical, you know, some specific problem just to their computer. By moving another advantage of moving to a web technology, besides it being faster and prettier and more modern, is that's running in the browser. And hopefully we should have less, you know, workstation specific problems um, that, that we have to uh, debug. In regards to, I guess, coming up into the field and introducing yourself to the field, what do you suggest we do as undergrads, uh, especially because you have more experience in the different uh, coding languages? Uh, I, 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 me, I'm learning Python now. I just wanted to know what you suggest. Sure. So um, as far as uh, coding languages, I, I think um, if you can, to me, once you know one programming language, I think it's pretty easy to um, to learn another one. So what I, I would advise that you find one programming language that um, is one is kind of current and one of the major ones um, and focus on that and develop your skills and get really strong in, in that programming language. Then once you know all the fundamentals of programming and can do it in that language, it's pretty easy to um, move on to and pick up another uh, programming language after that. Um, another piece of advice, and I actually saw um, a chat from um, one of the students here. Um, another thing that I super would advise is um, internships or co-ops. Any type of work experience that you can do during your undergraduate time is super helpful. So as I mentioned, I did two summer internships at IBM. They were both software engineering um, positions. And it really gives you an opportunity to, one, you know, see what it's like to work every day um, during the week. Then also it gives you a chance to apply some of the skills that you've learned in the classroom um, to your job. And uh, the work experience that I gained at UNC, at, um, sorry, at IBM was super helpful in one, helping to let me know that, hey, this is a career field that I really am interested in. And then also too, it gives you a great resume builder when you're ready to graduate, right? Then you can show on your resume, hey, I worked at these couple places um, for a couple summers. And then also builds one thing that I found that has been super helpful in your career in general um, is your what they call your professional network. So by um, starting to work in the field, then you can get some exposure. You can connect with and uh, meet some people who are already in the field. So then when you are time to you know look for a job, then I have more people to um, to contact. So I would definitely encourage um, internship and co-ops or any type of work experience. 
even if you have to just volunteer and you can't get paid for it. But any um, work experience you can get in your field um, while you're an undergraduate is, is, is excellent. Hi, I had a question. Um, do you have anyone on your team that has a more heavy science background? Um, not on my particular team because we're all software engineers, but in the bioinformatics core, yes, we do. Also, um, how has the COVID-19 situation impacted your job? That's an interesting question. So um, thankfully, um, this is one reason I'm very thankful to be a software engineer. Um, the job that I do, I really can do it anywhere. So um, the impact to my job has really just been the fact that I'm working from home all the time instead of going into the office. Um, again, I can, I can do everything that I need from home. I didn't have to physically be in the office to do what I need to do. One negative impact, though, has been because we interact with users so much. Of course, that has been a little bit more difficult. Um, you know, we do Zoom calls or WebEx, et cetera, but um, a lot of times users would just stop by my office and ask me a quick question. So um, the, I do miss that um, um, interaction, not, over, not only with our users, but also um, my, my peers. Um. Hi, do you feel like you're given like a lot of creative uh, leeway um, to spearhead like your own type of projects or did you feel like that came when you got promoted? Um, do you mean in terms of, hey, I, I, you know, no one has asked me to do this project, but I think it would be a kind of fun side project. Is that what you mean? Yeah. So I personally haven't done that um, just because I'm busy enough with my, my current job. Um, and I honestly, like, I love software engineering and I love it as my job, but at five o'clock when my day is done, I, I don't like enjoy doing it on the side. That's just me um, personally. But um, I do have um, the um, gentleman that I uh, office with. He, um, he has done some kind of exploratory type um, things where he was like, you know, this, we don't have a need for this exactly at the moment, but this could be something that's helpful. And so he's done some um, exploratory and kind of on the side projects and also used um, newer technologies um, for that in his role. So there is that um, flexibility and that opportunity, but I, I just haven't taken advantage of it personally. I have another question regarding that. So um, I know that some software engineers get projects handed to them if there's a problem, because my dad's a software engineer, but he's on the cybersecurity side. So I just wanted to know how that environment is in terms of like, if you're leading a project, of course you have more knowledge than who just, like somebody who just came in in their project. So like, is there a time where you get handed a project, like even though you don't really want it, but it's like you're the only one that who can actually do it? Yes, yeah, so that, um, that definitely happens and still happens to me. Um, so when I first joined UNC, I was a one-person team, so I was only one man maintaining this, pro this project. So that would happen to me all the time, of course. Um, but even now, um, as in um, leading the project, one thing that I try to do is I try and spread those times of task across the team, so no one has to always do the boring, monotonous, or um, you know, not so fun task. And then also, too, sometimes I on purpose take on some of these boring, monotonous tasks. Just because um, I I want my the rest of my team to be happy, so sometimes I'll just take on the load myself and, and do it. But yeah, there are definitely times when there are things that you have to do that are uh, 
not things that you really want to do for your job. But that's, I guess that's kind of why they call it a job sometimes too, though. Thank you. Just a follow-up question to that. Um, yeah. are, so when you work on these projects, do you have like external clients or people already in connection with like UNC? And uh, so since I've been at, at UNC, it's all um, internal. Uh, so all of our, our customers and clients and users are, um, are all within UNC. Now they, they might interact with other um, universities for their research projects, but we just interact with the um, representatives from UNC. Um, when I was working at IBM, all of our customers, uh, when, during my summer internship, there was, it was all internal as well. We were developing um, tools for other parts of IBM. But when I was um, working there full-time after graduation, um, all of our customers were external. You know, different people. I was working in the um, Blade Center development um, area. So it was all the companies that were buy, buying Blade servers um, for their uh, server farms. Um, so uh, I didn't have, at that point, uh, I didn't have the direct um, communication or interaction with customers. Uh, we had project managers and stuff who worked with our customers. So I would hear from the project managers what our customers needed. Okay, thank you. That's the end of my questions. I want to stop dropping questions. <laughs> No, it's okay. Uh, I have one. Uh, it's kind of related. Um, but when you start a project, how, how do you approach it as far as like, you know, um, developing software or like uh, starting from the ground up? How do you start? The, what's the, the, the like, uh, process like? Sure. So I usually start by making sure that I have a clear understanding of what the problem is that I'm trying to solve and what my requirements are. Uh, once I have that, then I take some time and I think about, um, do I have something already that does something similar? Or is there, is there something that already exists that I can kind of um, piggyback of, off of and, um, and add to? Because I try not to, you know, recreate the wheel as much as possible. Um, then after I've, you know, kind of then I guess that's part of my uh, game plan or kind of planning approach. And then once I've got my plan in place of how to implement something, then you go through and um, do your implementation and then um, rounds and rounds and uh, a lot of testing. And I have one more question. So uh, you talked about how you get the information from patients and then you do the BLC to fast. I think you said and um, yes. so can you explain a little more how you get um, patient data and transition it into computer data okay so um when I say patient data so um, I'm just a kind of a, a, a piece of this puzzle we have a lot of other applications that interact with our system it's like for example we have the central patient central patient registry sorry that was a mouthful um, that's where People who are associated with the research study on the study side, when they enroll patients in the study, then they can register their patients in there. And we also have that system also links to the UNC hospital system, EPIC, so we can get information from there about patients. So we have one system that represents the patients and have like the patient's demographics, um, you know, age, maybe um, ethnicity, um, general information about the patient. And that lives in one system. And so we have, um, in database terms, there are uh, primary keys and unique identifiers uh, for things within the database. So what we do is we'll take uh, a unique identifier from the patient system, and then we'll put it into the next application. For example, the sample tracking application. So then we have, through that unique identifier, we have a link 
to know what sample was associated with each patient. And then similarly for the, the data that comes out, we take a unique identifier from each sample and link that to the data. So that's how kind of from a programming perspective, we can link all this together. And um, a lot of the systems we have um, interact, um, interact with each other to um, pull all of this off. You were talking about multiplexing and, um, you know, I think right now there's 96 barcodes or maybe there's up to 384 barcodes that can be used. I was wondering if you ever had any issues with um, trying to track which lab multiplex or if there was an overlap in people using the same barcodes or how is that all um, coordinated? So there is overlap. So the barcodes themselves usually come from the library prep kits. Right. So um, what we have, what we do is we have when the um, lab is doing the library prep, they'll pick, you know, I used kit A and I used index number five. Now there are, because this, the, um, the barcode itself is just a series of A's, C's, and T's, C, A, C's, T's, and G's, um, there are, you know, that's really hard for the eye to look at. And there are a lot of situations, I shouldn't say a lot, there are a good number of situations where human error, you know, we get this wrong. So um, we try and do our best, you know, bookkeeping wise to keep track of what is what. Um, I have stored scripts right now that are written to, you know, swap things around because some of these barcodes also too, depending on the sequencing platform you use, they can, sometimes it's actually the reverse complement of what the barcode should be. Um, sometimes we have sample swaps, unfortunately. So uh, yes, there's a lot and these barcodes can get really messy and I think, um, they also do dual barcoding now so that they can fit even more samples in the lane. So that means there's maybe like eight nucleotides and eight nucleotides, so 16 nucleotides total. So yeah, there's a lot, a lot to keep track of there. I'm sorry, I said I was done, but I'm not. Um, I had another question regarding uh, how you process your data. So I heard that you primarily use JavaScript, right? Uh, we're using that for the our web application that we're rewriting yeah, for the web application. Sorry, um, but are there any limitations, or do you have to rely on like um, I guess some other code? Because I just started to learn how to code. Like I'm not, I don't know like the pros cons and differences. So I just wanted to um, know what the limitations are for Java. Uh, so for um, Java, there I guess any programming language that, that you use, um, you try as much as you can to use some of the, the programming language itself will have built-in libraries. Um, so built-in functions basically that you can call. So like let's say that I have a word which is called a string in software and let's say that I, I want to know how long that word is because I want to, let's say I have a field and like a password field, for example, um, on my on my application, and I need to verify that the user um, that the new password that the user created, you know, meets some sort of criteria, right? It needs to be at least eight characters long. It needs to have an uppercase letter and a special character, for example. So if you're um, programming, let's say, for example, you're programming in Java, then you would use some of the Java's built-in string classes to tell you about this field, the value that they just put into this field. So like you can say string.length and that will tell me the length of what they just entered in. Or you can say like string.value at to check to see that there's an uppercase character, for example. So um, there are a lot of scenarios where you use um, built-in um, thin functions of that particular programming language. Um, and you can, they can limit you a little bit, but my experience so far, they haven't really limited me very much because 
Um, these days, there are a bunch of like open source projects as well, um, people adding, or maybe it's not already built into Java, but maybe somebody else um, has a package, they've done this as well. Maybe you can borrow some of their code. A lot of um, people are posting common things, especially with um, RNA-seq and different sequencing platforms, they're posting their code and making it available. So you can download and kind of incorporate it into your code. So for the most part, I haven't really run into limitations with libraries. Now you do have limitations in the programming language itself. Like as I mentioned, our 15-year-old um, version of the application was written in Java, is written in Java Swing. So it has limitations because, you know, it's a very old, well, an older technology, right? It does, it can't do a, you know, really fancy looking but button or it's really hard to, if somebody's entering a date, it doesn't have a built-in way for you to pop up like a calendar view so they can just click on, you know, July 10th from the calendar. Any other questions? I have an um, institutional level question. You've mentioned that you guys have this homegrown system that's been worked on for 15-ish years, but there are commercially available software systems that do similar functions, right? Um, what guides the choice between we're going to build one ourselves versus we're going to buy one that's um, off the shelf and comes ready-made? Uh, right. Um, that's a great question. Um, one is, of course, the money that you have, right? If you have several hundred thousand dollars that you just want to spend. Um, uh, so for um, our application, especially if you're, so we're a core service to the cancer center. So if you're a cancer center member, then our services are technically free because the cancer center um, pays for that. So that's a you know big issue for a big deal for uh, those who are associated with the cancer center. Um, but in general, as you're, um, that's always the big question is you know should you build something or should you buy something? Um, one big trade-off um, between building and buying. If you build it yourself, then you have full control over everything, right? You can customize it in any way that you want. You can uh, expand it and make it go this way or do, and so you have full control over everything and allows you great flexibility. Um, if you buy pack, um, buy software, um, a lot of what I've seen is um, a lot of companies will advertise that they can, um, you know, craft it and um, make changes for you, but each change comes with a cost, right? You have to pay them to implement these changes. And because you're one of, you know, thousands of customers to them, if your change is really, really, really specific, they probably won't, won't do it, right? They, they want their product to kind of, you know, follow this model and, and work for everyone. So it's really um, a, a choice between, you know, one, how much money do you have to spend? Do you have the time also to, to take that, that it would take to develop something in-house versus buying something? And how customizable uh, do you want this application to be? So are there other groups at UNC that have laboratory information management systems like the one that you work on? And if so, have they built their own versions or bought off the shelf or, um, you know, like how, how much, how universally applicable is the work that you've done to build the system at Limeburger? Okay. Uh, so for the first part of your question, I've seen both. So for the most part, I've seen facilities um, either adapt or either um, accept, um, use our application or develop something their own, on their own. I have seen one facility um, purchase a product, but they found out that after they purchased it, they found out that it didn't do half of the stuff that they wanted it to do. 
so then they abandoned it and then uh, started building something themselves. Um, so like I said, I've seen um, both sides of it. Um, and as far as our application, it's been, I'm, I'm probably a little bit biased here, but it's been super expandable. Um, so as I mentioned, when I first started working at UNC, I was just a one person team and it was just, our application was just being used in one lab. So over time, um, the application has grown and we are now um, being used in eight different labs on campus. Um, th very um, thankfully, um, it's been pretty easy um, to, well, I should say easy. It's been the application itself, the way it was written and the kind of backend database structure made it very flexible and um, helped us in a lot of ways to be able to expand it to different labs and different labs. I always like to ask the professionals, what do you see as the um, future challenges of your career and what is the job outlook for your career? question um future challenges um one future challenge of definitely being in a technology career is staying current on um, the newer technologies and newer trends and not getting yourself kind of siloed or stuck in an older technology so that you can continue to keep your career options open um sorry what was the other other half of your question uh the job outlook job outlook um I think so overall um as far as I've looked um I'm not great at staying current on the, the job outlook itself but um I I you know technology is continuing to evolve so I think that they'll in the future now we'll continue to need uh, software engineers does anyone else have any questions or advice they would like to ask how you would go about getting an internship at a lab excellent question so um of course, uh, see, um, probably if, I mean, if you knew someone in the field already, um, being able to get in contact um, with them to see if they had any um, opportunities open. I'm not sure, I know UNC posts full-time positions on their, the UNC HR website. I suspect that they post um, like summer internships and temporary positions there as well. Um, but this is probably um, your best bet other than, you know, online job postings is, as I mentioned, had mentioned earlier, your, um, your uh, social network, right? If you know, you know someone who's in the field or you know someone's parents who are in the field, um, that's probably, uh, that's another great avenue to, um, to get internship opportunities. And I'm not sure at your various schools. I know at NC State, you can go to the um, Career Center and they had a lot of um, internships and job opportunities um, there that they could tell you about, as well as, you know, um, contacts as well. Well, please join me in thanking Janae for joining us today and uh, sharing her expertise and her advice and experience with us. Thank you. Hi, you're welcome. It was nice meeting Thank you all, you. and I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too.